Matt, what do you think of when I say bank? Mind the gap. Uh, what? It's what the loudspeaker says at Bank Station on the London Underground. Mind the gap. Uh, I also think of Monopoly. My nine-year-old son likes to be the banker. And uh, I think of a bank shot in basketball that bounces off the backboard. You don't think of the place where you keep your money? What money? Ah, now I think I get the picture. Well, I'm thinking about the bank that is a financial institution. As in the bank that lends you money or where you deposit your money. <sighs> yes, I suppose I was just trying not to think about that. But you should think about it. Banks are central to the economy and to politics. You can't understand any of these important subjects unless you know what different kinds of banks do and how they fit into the overall economy. Can we just play basketball? Sure, in about a half hour you can go play basketball. But first, we're going to figure this thing out. It sounds complicated. If only there was a podcast that would explain these financial terms in a simple way that was easy to understand. Maybe we could do one. We do work at the European Investment Bank, after all. Hmm. What should we call it? How about a dictionary of finance? That's brilliant. Let's do it. This is a Dictionary of Finance. Every week on this podcast, we'll be asking financial experts to explain a particular term in finance. We'll make them answer in a way that's easy to understand and even fun. So if you're a student... Or if you run a business... Or if you'd like to understand what politicians are talking about when they talk about the economy... Then subscribe to this podcast and before you know it, you'll be a bit of an expert yourself. Today, you'll become a bit of an expert on banks. To talk about banks, we're joined by Natasha Valla and Marcus Bent. Marcus is responsible for developing new areas of engagement here at the European Investment Bank in Luxembourg. Before that, he was head of policy and strategy in the, econo in the economics department. It's a very tricky subject, isn't it? Uh, economics. It's hard to yes, say. It is. It's hard to say. Marcus used to work at the International Monetary Fund at the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development and at McKinsey. He has a PhD in economics from the Max Planck Institute and the University of Hamburg and was a research fellow at Harvard University. He runs, plays piano and guitar and has a university student. He was in a band that he describes as kind of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You can't see this because this is a podcast, but unlike the Chili Peppers, Marcus is performing today with his shirt on. It's a very nice Thank shirt. You. Natasha Valla is the head of the Policy and Strategy Division in the Economics Department at the European Investment Bank, the area Marcus used to run. She studies investment dynamics and international capital flows. Natasha also works on evaluating the macroeconomic impact of the money that the EIB lends out. She's an economist who started her career at the European Central Bank. She also worked in the private sector for a while and co-ran a think tank for the French Prime Minister before joining the European Investment Bank. She's just finished writing a textbook on financial macroeconomics. Oh, we should read that textbook, shouldn't we? These guys are the real deal, Allah. We promised you experts and here you have them, experts. Natasha is definitely an expert on economics. She also loves nature, hiking, skiing, reading and children. Marcus and Natasha, welcome to A Dictionary of Finance. Natasha, let's start with the hardest kind of question, a very basic one. What is a bank? An essential question. It's, a, it's an institution. It's an intermediary. In the economy, you have 
savings. You have people with more money than what they need today. And you also have institutions, people who have less money than what they think they need today. And you might think, well, why don't they interact directly and then lend to each other, which would be direct lending. Uh, that's not always easy, and that's why we have banks. Banks, in a sense, match savings to investment needs. But I assume it started out w without this institution. It started out, like you said, with just people lending each other money and getting it back with uh, with an interest rate, right? Is, it, that is that is, how it started? That is true. We even had barter without even money. So money is already a first institution between two people exchanging something. A bank in history, uh, how have banks become so powerful? Because we know now that banks are very powerful institutions. And we, you have to get back to the, I would say, the 14th, 15th century, perhaps, mm. uh, with Italian banking. I mean, there were banking uh, notes in other places in the world, but Italian banks are the most famous for, for that, the Medici Bank, uh, which basically grew its business uh, from the very, you know, simple principle I, I, I gave you, but grids business by lending to sovereigns and lending to the Pope. So basically lending to the state and lending to the church. I have uh, a checking account or uh, you know, a current account um, with a savings account. That's retail banking, right? What other kinds of banking are there? That's right. So you have, you have many kinds of banking and the family of banks has expanded as financial uh, sophistication went on. So you have retail banking exactly for the purpose you say. You have a savings account and you probably have a mortgage too. Maybe you don't, but a lot of people do. So this is retail banking. Uh, you also have, there's also what we call wholesale banking, which is banking between banks, between financial intermediaries. So some banks are better than others at uh, getting money in some markets and, and give, passing it on to, to, to other institutions. You also, I mean, there's also a big family which is called investment banking. Well, an investment bank in the private sense of the term is an mm -hmm. entity that has uh, many, so not necessarily retail activity, but many activities that, that uh, relate to uh, market trading, so trading assets in markets with other intermediaries, uh, has to do with corporate funding, uh, finding money for corporates, not necessarily another form, taking the form of a loan, of a bank loan, it could take many other forms. Is this what's also called a merchant bank in Britain? Um, yes, my merchant bank would be probably broader. I think it has also mm -hmm. a longer history. Mm -hmm. It makes me think of something that I was going to forget, but we are also kind of one, uh, is that we have development banks. Mm -hmm. So banks that are there for uh, purposes that are related to economic development, and, and those are mostly usually public banks, but you also have private entities. What's a multilateral uh, development or investment bank? Now, a multilateral development bank or a multilateral bank is a bank that has um, uh, many parties on it, in its capital, so many, mm -hmm. many, many owners, and that also invest in many different parts of the world. So it, this multilateralism reflects, to my view, the multilateral um, sort of 
institutional monetary order that we have built since Bretton Woods, so since the Second World War. So that would be like the World Bank or the European Investment Bank. Exactly. So the World Bank is, is the essence of the multilateral development mm -hmm. bank. The EIB is definitely a an, an multilateral development bank or MDB. Uh, there are many around and so, it's a community. We yeah. speak to each other. Uh, we interact, we try to have, uh, you know, understand our policies, see whether we have the same practices. Uh, this is this is a world of its own. So a normal retail bank that would be listed with tons of shareholders, we could also call that a multilateral retail bank. Well, no, because, because they have a lot of shareholders, various interests. No, that's so so so. It's a bit different from that. Having different shareholders means a multi a, a, a diverse ownership of the bank. But it does not mean that you have different um, sovereign or quasi-sovereign entities driving the bank, mm -hmm. uh, which is the case for an NBDB like the EIB or the World Bank. And uh, just to complement to what uh, uh, Natasha said, I think there's one, there's one third very important function that banks plays in our daily lives, which is just the payment systems. So if we go to, to, uh, to the supermarket around the corner and use our credit card. That's already something that's usually done from our bank account and goes directly to them. So that's uh, one of these things that were less important in the old days, uh, but, but have become, of course, uh, important now. And then one other thing, uh, because of your question regarding the development, uh, of course, every bank, I mean, the, the mere existence of banks helps societies to develop because you can you know, instead of uh, running around, if you're if you're a company and you want to invest in something that you think is good for your company, but ultimately for the society, because this service that you will then be able to provide, or this product that you will then uh, be able to provide, uh, will will only generate money for yourself, because everybody in the society thinks that that's useful, right? And that's why they give you money. Uh, instead of having to run around and ask everybody for. 10 or 20 euros, you just go to the bank and get the loan right away. And through that activity, the bank helps develop the, the society. So I think the distinguishing factor uh, between a, a normal bank, in quotes, uh, and, and a development bank is that uh, a normal bank can only do this when, when the benefits that are generated through this development uh, are um, such that whoever is developing this new product gets gets enough money from that development to be able to repay the loan to the bank. Mm -hmm. Whereas some other benefit, uh, some other developments like climate action, if you invest into climate or in preventing climate change, that investment does not generate that extra, uh, extra uh, return that allows you to repay uh, the loan because, you know, the, the, the effect of less climate change affects the whole world and not just the consumers of your electric mm -hmm. car, whatever you're trying to Uh, to develop with that investment. And that's where development banks then take a different perspective than, than a normal bank, or, or they are allowed to do so because their shareholders, which are no normally, as Natasha said, uh, public institutions, uh, uh, governments, they want them. They're interested in the, in, in the development. They're not interested in, in, in generating any, any profits mm -hmm. or getting anything back. And just like that at the EIB, for example, our shareholders, the EU, uh, the EU member states have never seen any returns from from us we never pay them dividend so every year because the EIB is a, is like all the other development banks is a is a non non-profit yeah but, but the, so, the, so the difference is that basically even though at the EIB we also expect projects to uh, recover the costs and to be able to pay back the loan 
if we didn't have that development component in our mission, we would be lending all our money to perhaps some more profitable operations that wouldn't deal in climate action, for example. Absolutely. We, we are not... Our shareholders explicitly ask us to care about what the overall development impact is of, of the project that we're investing in, rather than what is the return. So we, we can, uh, so somebody who is investing in that development of, let's say, an electric engine, that, that will cover the costs, but does not generate a return that would be kind of the fair, fair return for the high risk that you're taking. Because, I mean, of course, if you do 10 of these developments, maybe eight of them will fail and don't generate an electric engine or one that's way too expensive or too heavy or whatever. Uh, but then, uh, but but we explicitly take, in a way, too much risk, or or we ask for too little compensation, because we care about the 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 ultimate developmental impact, and that's that's important. So we have to cover the costs. The uh, the member states don't want us to go bankrupt the next year, but we don't have to generate any returns for them in order to uh, you know because they for, they forgo tax money. They could do something else with it, but they think it's it's important to have a development bank or promotional bank that that is interested in, in these things and that's inside Europe and also outside Europe so but now yes so uh, no I wanted to get back to various kinds of banks that we hear about all the time there's also the central banks so what is what what does the central bank do so a central bank is the mother of money it's 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 a very 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 it, different institution it from a commercial money, bank. it does uh -huh. it does it is the only institution on earth that is that has the power to create money deus ex machina, so out of nothing, and to circulate it in the economy. Hmm. Since the crisis in 2008, we, the world, the, the paradigm in the world has changed because, in a sense, the economy is not able to generate inflation in the normal way. And therefore, we have been stuck for a number of years in a low growth uh, you know, equilibrium with no inflation or with even deflation. So we would have loved to have more inflation. And that's indeed the reason why, with the quantitative easing policies that central banks in advanced economies have started in the wake of 2008, that was exactly their purpose. The, the purpose was, it was not the only purpose, but in fine, was to print money and create inflation because we wanted more inflation. But there's a, there's a very, you have to be very careful because in normal times, uh, you might end up having too much inflation, and that's, that's, that's not good. But, you know, in, in difficult times and in times uh, like the ones we have gone through in the mm -hmm. past few years, uh, that was the mechanism that central banks have tried to engineer by printing money and, and implementing quantitative easing policies. Mm -hmm. This 2008 crisis that Natasha has just mentioned, that was banks that caused that. Am I right? In the old days, banking was relatively easy. You, you got money from, from someone and then you lent to company and then you got the money back. Uh, but uh, the, the, the good thing about innovation, like in, in the real sphere, also in financial sphere, is that you, you come up with new ideas of, of, of making this, this transaction between those who want to save money and those who want to borrow money to invest better and come up with better ideas. And, and I, I think an important uh, thing that happened in the uh, run-up of the crisis was this idea to um, to kind of disengage as a bank yourself and 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 and, and uh, help direct direct relationships between those who want to save and who who want to borrow, and and um, 
by uh, and the way this was done was by packages so you you lend money to, to someone who, who build a house or wants to build a mm -hmm. house or buy a house and then you you uh, and you do that many many times and then you uh, so you have many many loans outstanding and then you package them together and say well I, I put them all together in one piece and everybody buys a, th a thousands of this loan thousands of all these loans I put them together and then I sell them to someone else who who then uh, has has uh, is basically lending directly to that house owner which you couldn't do by yourself because then you would have to run to a thousand different people who want to buy a house so so banks were kind of uh starting to be quite innovative in in terms of generating these kind of uh, products where they um they design they they lend to someone they package it and then they sell it off to someone else who, who then is the ultimate uh, um, owner of of that asset of this uh, relationship between the mm -hmm. house owner and, and the and the saver the, and and that was um uh, that was a, a good idea in, in principle the, the problem was that of course and that, that's a that's an important uh, element in banking itself and that's why we have uh, a lot of regulation which i guess we have to talk about as well in this particular case, the bank had every interest in, in, in saying this is a great product because they were not really keeping the risk themselves. They were just selling it to someone else who was thinking, wow, this is a, the bank is selling this to me. So, I mean, they looked at it and I can trust them. It's, it's a great, great product. And I get much more than if I put it in my saving accounts in the bank itself. So maybe I'm buying this product instead. But, but and, and this is the, and this, of course, this, which is called a moral hazard or non-alignment of interest, leads to the, led to the fact that the banks were a bit over-optimistic in assessing the risks of all these uh, uh, all these uh, assets that they generated, and were kind of overselling, or you know, you know, they were selling uh, selling it to their customers, pretending that this is this is not very much risk because there's so many houses uh, that are behind; and they will not all go down at the same time. And um, this is a good deal for you. And so then, yeah. so I, I, I imagine that in a normal scenario, if somebody misuses trust of a client, uh, then, uh, then, if, um, then if I'm disappointed in this bank that sold me something that I don't think is very valuable, then I simply I stop doing business with this bank and go to another bank. So, so why is there a need of so much regulation of banking? I think that's that's a fair point, and that will happen with banks as well. I remember that when my grandfather was <laughs> was already very old, and and he was uh, advised by some banker uh, to buy some that was some real estate investment vehicles. Uh, I told him he should change his bank because it didn't make any sense because uh, this guy was selling him these uh, financial products was selling on products that would have returns 30, 40 years later in the long run. They might have been a good idea for a long run investment, but not for somebody who, who mm -hmm. wanted to have maybe uh, some extra money five years from now and not uh, not uh, 30 years from now. So uh, and I, I think that happens. I'm not saying that doesn't happen. The problem is with banks, they have a because they fulfill all these functions that Natasha described, they have a very systematic or systemic importance in the society and if for example in, the, in this case that i was describing a lot of banks because if one bank starts it and they make a lot of money it's just attractive for other banks and everybody's then running jumping on this ship and selling these kind of products uh 
and maybe some of them even thinking they are not so bad. I'm not saying that everybody was trying to, you know, fool others. Uh, uh, then, then this can lead to uh, to an effect that the entire system collapses. So there's not much of another bank to run to mm-hmm. in that particular case. Once the house prices then went down, then that had an effect on some of these these financial products. Then, then it was difficult to finance the next house. Then the other, uh, then mm-hmm. the whole system collapsed, and then and then there's not much more to run to. And, and precisely because of the systemic importance, you cannot just rely on you just going to the next grocery store if the tomatoes in the first grocery store were, were rotten. Mm-hmm. What was the, what was the thinking behind after that 2008 crash? Was there was a big bailout of many different banks in many different countries? Why not, Natasha, let a bank? go bankrupt? Uh, if the bank that you decide to let go is sufficiently isolated, uh, that should be fine because you don't have those systemic effects that Marcus was mentioning, meaning the financial stability of the whole system would not be jeopardized. Um, on the contrary, so in that case, let the bank fail. But <clears throat> if you are uncertain and if the the bank you consider you consider to let, let let go is a bank that is systemic, meaning if you close it, then other banks who have claims on that bank lose money. If that's, those claims are big enough, enough or connected enough to many different institutions, then those other, bank, other banks will have to fail as well or will need a bailout as well. So you might end up amplifying the need for bailout for bad reasons, because you have killed an institution that was completely central to the stability of the system. So that's really what has become a full field of of policy and research, which is financial stability. And the financial stability mandate, most of the times it it, it ends up in the hands of the central bank, because because it is the one that can create money um, uh, uh, overnight. Uh, but but this this financial stability argument is the reason why you don't want to let some uh, banks fail. And the difficulty is to know which one may fail and which one may not. That is why you also have regulation. As Marcus was rightly saying, you have, if within the bank, so say you have a universal bank. We did not mention universal banks. But is that the same as a retail bank? It is a retail or? bank, an investment bank, a trading bank. It's a... Universal, it's doing everything. So take a universal bank that takes huge trading losses for some market trading, foolish trading activities Mm -hmm. of a a foolish trader has done some crazy stuff and then the bank has a lot of big losses. Now, this might have an implication on the other activities of the bank, including retail banking. Now, those poor depositors that didn't have anything to do with the, the, the crazy trader might be exposed to the losses of the bank because you know there are links within an institution. So that's why at some point in the history of reg- banking regulation, but it dates back f- to, to the 30s even, at some point someone said, well, we have to sort of you know, create clusters and we don't want to allow those universal banks to, to, to that might you know, induce that depositors bear risks that should be borne mm-hmm. by 
by mm. others. So that was really what was called the famous Glass-Steagall Act, if you have heard of it, which was really making sure you have uh, sort of silos and you wouldn't have those connections between banking activities. This was then repealed, and then the crisis came. The Obama administration introduced the Dodd-Frank Act, which said very quickly, sort of re-established some regulation uh, where it had disappeared in the 80s. Well, Natasha, Marcus, thank you so much. For more from uh, A Dictionary of Finance, you can subscribe to this podcast on the uh, iTunes podcast app and on Stitcher and everywhere else that you listen to podcasts. And you can also be in touch with us on Twitter. You can get in touch with Alar at... At A-L-L-A-R-T-A-N-K-L-E-R. Alar Tankler, at Alar Tankler. It's all in English. There's no Estonian stuff on there, is there? No Estonian stuff, and you can get in touch with us and let us know what other financial terms you would like to have explained to you in the future episodes of this podcast. And you can do the same thing with me at E-I-B-Matt, M-A-T-T, at E-I-B-Matt on Twitter. Uh, Subscribe to this and uh, do us a favor and rate it as well. Um, And we'll see you again, or well, you'll hear us again on A Dictionary of Finance.